You guys, um, we're in for a treat. Ben is an excellent communicator. He's been part of Northwest Hills for the last seven or so years. He's been married a year and a half, have a sweet little baby boy due in September. So that's way exciting. Congratulations. And in, let's see. Yeah, heck yeah. Um, in the end of this month, Ben is going to be leaving with his wife to go up to Portland to be doing uh, more InterVarsity stuff. So they're not going to be part of our church family here anymore. But uh, we still love them, support them, pray for them. Yes. Um, that's good. We weren't kicking you out completely. So, uh, yeah, th this has been this week. Next week, uh, once you come back, we have one of our elders, Don Snow, is going to be preaching on eldership, kind of what eldership looks like here at Northwest Hills and biblically what it's about. So, so come back. It'll be really good. But uh, I want to pray for Ben. Um, so could we all stand up together and let's pray for Ben and pray for our message this morning. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Ben. Um, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would speak through him. I thank you for the friendship that we have with him. I thank you that he is just an excellent communicator of your word, one that loves you, one that's devoted his life uh, to preaching the gospel and to sharing with others the good news of Christ. Lord, I thank you for him this morning. I pray that he would speak clearly and that we would really just uh, receive well your word. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen. 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 Thank you, Ben. Yeah. <clears throat> thank you, Josh, for that lovely introduction. Yeah, uh, this is my last month here at Northwest Hills. I've been here for a long time, which it, it's kind of surreal and kind of crazy. So in a lot of ways, um, this sermon is kind of some parting words for y'all. So, uh, but I'm excited about it. Um, it was really fun preaching in first service, and I think God's got some good stuff for us. So before we get into that, I want to ask a, a question. We're going to do a little bit, like, interactive stuff. So if you came expecting to, like, just sit back quietly, ha-ha, you don't get to. So uh, how many of you have ever heard this question? Or that's not a question. Not, I'm asking the question. How many of you ever heard this statement, God works through imperfect people? Anybody ever heard that? Okay. Good. So I'm going to name a few people from the Bible who were imperfect, and you're going to tell me their imperfections. We're going to have a little public shaming right now. It's going to be really fun. Okay? So, ready? Moses. Murderer. Murderer. Okay, great. That was good. I mean, that, that counts, right? That's, that's a pretty big imperfection. Uh, David. Adulterer. And murderer. Indirectly. Okay. Jacob. Polygamist. A lot of people in the Bible could be faulted for that. Thief, yeah. He stole the birthright of his brother. I thought someone just for good measure was going to go, murderer, because why not? How about Peter? Denier, yeah. He denied Jesus at a pretty crucial moment. How about Paul? Murderer! <laughs> uh, and uh, just because I want to give the ladies some love here, how about Rahab? Yes, okay. And just to see if um, anybody... No, I can't really think of anybody else right now. I was going to like, let's name a random person. Like, Hulda. She was just a prophet. No, she didn't kill anybody. It's fine. Um, what about Abram or Abraham? Okay. Uh, that heard liar. <laughs> we, like, we like this one for Abram. We say, oh, Abram was a liar because he lied. So I was like, ooh, okay, let's play with that. And I looked up, 
read through his life, like, where are the places where Abram lies? It's interesting. He lies exactly, as far as I can tell, two times and tells the exact same lie. So that's pretty good, actually. I think he's, he's doing all right. <laughs> yeah, there's this story from Genesis 12 where Abram lies. So I, that's actually the, the text I'd love to speak on this morning. So if you have Bibles, open them up to Genesis 12. It's probably on page like six or seven of your Bible. It's really early. Genesis 12, and we're going to start at verse 10. Okay, so I'm going to read this story where Abram lies. Oh, and just right off the bat, he's Abram for a while, and then God changes his name to Abraham, and I'm probably going to say both. I mean the same person. I don't mean to be confusing. It's just hard for me to remember sometimes. Okay, verse 10, Genesis 12, verse 10. Now, there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to reside there as an alien, for the famine was severe in the land. And when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know well you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared on your account. When Abram entered Egypt and the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful, or how about I read that again? When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. When the officials of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female slaves, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with, a, with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? So I took her to be my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and be gone. And Pharaoh gave his men orders concerning him, and they sent him on the way with his wife and all that he had. Now, if I was going to write a story that was, the moral of the story was, don't lie. This is not how I would do it. Right? So Josh said, I have a son on the way. And so I'm imagining a few years from now when my son lies, which he never will. Uh, and I say, okay, son, like, I need to tell you something about lying. I mean, it's not good. Because if you lie, God will punish the people you lie to and give you all their stuff. <laughs> so don't lie. I don't think it takes a particularly nasty kid to go, hey... This could work out well for me, right? So I don't think this story is necessarily about lying. And I think if we look at it through that lens of like, oh, this is, you know, just Abraham was a liar, and that, but God works through him, and there we go. Like, if that's the moral of the story, I think we're actually going to miss something really big, like a big part of what this story is trying to do, because this story is part of a larger story that God is telling. And I'm just going to tip my hand right now and say, this story is not about Abram lying. It's about the trustworthiness of God. It's about God's commitment and faithfulness and trustworthiness to his people in whatever situation they find themselves in. And therefore, our takeaway from this morning, also I'm going to tip my hand, is for us as a church and as individuals to begin to entrust more and more of our lives to God. And by entrust, I mean we have a way that we might want to do it, 
and we feel like God is inviting us or, or calling us to, to act a different way. And even though we feel like, you know, this way makes sense or this is what I want to do, we're going, you know what, God, I'm going to go your way. I'm going to do it the way you are calling me to. That's what I mean by trust. It's actually acting differently because of something God has done. And I'm actually in a place in my life where, I think we're always in a place in our life where this is important, but as I look ahead to the, some pretty major transitions that are going to happen for me, like my wife and I are going to have to decide what kind of people do we want to live? What do we want to teach our son about life with Jesus? And as we enter into a new city and take new jobs with, uh, with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, we're going to have to ask the question, like, what does it look like for us to trust God here? And those are, those are fairly big questions, but I, so I'm, I'm preaching to myself as much as I am to, to everyone here. So, and extending more and more trust to God for more and more places in our lives. Now, what would happen if this church began, like as a church, not just the leadership, but everybody in it, began asking God regularly, okay, God, like, is there some place where we are not extending trust to you that you would have us trust you? Is there a risk that you're inviting us to take that we have been reluctant to take? Give us courage to say yes to you and to, to move forward in faith. What would happen if this church just regularly did that? I think it would just, it would come alive in ways it never has before. And I'm not saying that to say this church is dead. That is not what I'm saying. But like, what new possibilities could open up? What new doors could open up if we said, okay, God, how can we say yes to you in a new way? Help us to do that. We didn't just go on autopilot every week, but but trust that God was actually going to say something new and do something new, and we were going to respond to it with a yes. I think that would be pretty awesome to see. And if that's what I get to leave you guys with, then I'm pretty excited about that. So let's go back to the story, to Genesis 12. How is this story about trust? Well, I'm a big fan of looking at stories in context. I don't think we ought to just like jump into this Bible and just look at one story and figure out what it means and then jump onto the next story and figure out what it means. Stories have things that come before them that color our reading of them and things that come after to show us the effects. So let's look at what happened before Abram went to Egypt. Genesis 1 through 11 is kind of this, it's like this prehistory story and it's written in a very specific way and has some very big themes that get developed. And then Genesis 12 is what we call the beginning of redemptive history. It's where God kind of reached into history in a new way, grabbed a hold of one man and his family and was like, you're the people that I'm going to work through from now on. And this is, this, Genesis 12 is where that happens. So this is uh, just the beginning, verse 1. I'm just going to read it. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. And I'm going to skip down to verse 6. So Abraham passed through the land 
to a place at Shechem to the Oak of Morah. And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So what we notice in the beginning of chapter 12 is that Abram is encountering God in this cool new way where God is speaking to him and saying, I'm going to, like, I'm choosing you and your family. You're going to be a great nation, and I'm going to bless you. And through that, like, all the peoples of the world will be blessed. And it seems like Abram's pretty excited about that. He's like, yeah, I'm on board. Let's go. And so he leaves. It actually says at the beginning of verse 4, so Abram went. There's a little cause and effect thing that's fun to look at in Scripture, right? One thing happens, which causes something else to happen. You know, a cause happens, and then the effect is this. God speaks. That's the cause. The effect Abraham goes. And then later, the Lord appeared to him and said, to your offspring, I'll give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord. Again, God has spoken. God does something. And Abram responds. This is, this is what it means to trust God with our lives. Abram is doing things out of response to what God has done. And then in verse 10, which is what I read first, this happens. Now, there was a famine in the land. So Abram went. The same phrase that happened the first time, only now the circumstances are completely different. Now it's not God who has said something, it's there's no food. And then later, when he goes into Egypt, he's about to enter in and he has this conversation with his wife where he's like, okay, they're going to kill me, so let's act differently. Let's just say that you're my sister. That way, neither of us die, which is a win in my book. So in this one, it's the reality of what the Egyptians are going to do that causes him to act in a certain way. So again, first part of Genesis 12 shows us what living a life of trust and faith is. It's God does something, we say yes. The second part of Genesis 12 is showing, look, circumstances sometimes uh, we, we, we act sometimes out of our circumstances rather than on what God has done. And to be fair, these are pretty big circumstances. The first thing that happens is a famine. I don't know that many of us in this room have experienced a famine, like where there is no food. Like you go into Winco to go shopping and there's nothing there. And so you go, well, oh, that's weird. I guess Winco is closed. I'll go down to Market of Choice. And then there's no food at market of choice. And you go, well, that's weird. I'll just keep driving on circle until I get out to Safeway. And then you realize Safeway has no food. So then you go, well, maybe I'll just go to Subway and get a sandwich. And Subway's like, sorry, guys, we're out. And you realize there is no food in Corvallis. And then you go down to the river, and there's no water in the river. And you turn on your tap, and no water comes out. What do you start to do? You're starting to panic. You're starting to go, I have to go somewhere else where there is food. Like, that's, that's what is happening for Abram here. And honestly, I think when, when he encounters this famine and when he encounters Egypt and we go, ah, see, he lied, he doubted, he didn't trust God, ha, ha, ha. Like, maybe we need to cut him a little slack. Because God never said, hey, if there's a famine, I'll take care of you. If you go to Egypt... You don't have to worry about Pharaoh. He never said those things. All he said was, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. He didn't say how that was going to happen. The details are really fuzzy. 
And in that confusing fuzziness, that's a funny phrase, confusing fuzziness, in that, Abram acts just like anybody else would. Anybody else in his situation would have done the exact same thing. It never even occurs to Abram that he can act differently. He never even thinks, hey, there's a famine, but God said he'd bless me. Maybe that means he can provide for me in the wilderness. He has no idea what God is capable of. God's only spoken four sentences to him. And when he gets into Egypt, he's not thinking, Pharaoh, this guy's a chump. He doesn't know what's up. God's going to take care of him. Ha ha. He's like, oh, Pharaoh is the most powerful person on earth. I don't want to mess with him. And I don't want him to mess with me. He never thinks, oh, God's powerful enough to deal with this with Pharaoh. He acts just like anyone else would. So he goes to Egypt. He says, Sarah's not my wife. She's my sister. And so Sarah gets taken into Pharaoh's, probably his harem. And Abram gets to get a bunch of stuff. And then God acts. And God doesn't go, Abram, don't lie. He says, Pharaoh, don't steal people's wives. Bam! And he like hits him with a bunch of plagues. Which is a whole other sermon about how God seems to care more about the abuse of power than he does with how that abuse of power forces Abram into this situation. But God acts, God punishes Pharaoh, and God brings Abram out and blesses him in the midst of it. If it's, it's not about lying, it's about something bigger. It's about God saying, look, Abram, you didn't know this, but now you do. You can trust me. You can trust me in this situation. I'm going to take care of you. You trusted me when I first spoke to you, when I said, like, I was going to bless you and make your name great. And you said yes, and that's awesome. And I want you to know that you can also trust me when you run out of food. And you can also trust me when you're in a really horrible situation like you were in Egypt. You can trust me in all those places. I am big enough to deal with them. And I know you didn't know that, but now you do. And I think he's, he's trying to get Abram to this place where Abram can say, I didn't even know that. I, I had no idea I could trust God with that. I didn't, I didn't realize that. Oh my gosh, totally new possibilities are opening up, which is great because the next time Abram is facing the situations, he totally acts differently. Not. He does the same thing later. Trusting God is difficult. And, and luckily, when you read through the Old Testament and the New Testament, you read through Scripture, you realize God is incredibly patient with people and helps them learn how to trust him. And he, it, he sticks with Abram through all of Abram's like fits as he learns how to trust God. And he sticks with Abram's descendants as they learn how to trust God. And all through it, God's like, let me give you something more that will help you trust me. Let me give you something more that shows you that I'm going to take care of you. Some examples of those, if you read through particularly some of the, the Old Testament laws, God says, look, people of Israel, you can trust me economically. I will take care of you. So when you work, work for six days, take a day off. You don't need to work all the time. I will take care of it. And when you're planting your crops, plant for six years, harvest for six years. That seventh year, just take the year off. I'll take care of you. Let the land rest. 
And how about this? Every 50 years, let's, do a, let's hit the economic reset button. All the debts that you owe, canceled. All the debts that are owed to you, canceled. All the land that you had to sell for whatever reason, I'll bring it back. And then all the land that you bought, you get to give it back. You don't have to spend your life like clawing to get ahead economically. I'll take care of you. And I'll take care of you politically as well. I know all the other nations have a king. And you really want a king because that's what nations do. They have kings. You don't need one. I will be your king. Or how about socially? I know that it's hard for you to want to hang out with the foreigners in your midst or the poor or the widows or the orphans, but trust me, like, welcome them into your homes. Care for them. Trust me socially. And trust me spiritually. You don't need idols. I know all the other nations have idols. Don't make them. They're not real. They're not going to take care of you like I can. Trust me. And Israel trusted God with all of these things. Not. No, they didn't. It was hard for them. In fact, all these things they had trouble with. It was so hard for them to trust God. Like, so hard for them to act in a way that was different than everything else that they saw. And the same is true with Jesus. It was really hard for people to trust Jesus, to trust that God would actually come down as one of them, to show them what he was really like, and to take their sins and die on the cross. And then rise from the dead in power and victory. Like it's, it was really hard for them to trust that. And hard for them to believe that God was actually going to pour out his Holy Spirit on all peoples, on men, women, young, old, all nations, all races. That God was going to use everybody now to be his people, to be a blessing to the world. It's really hard for them to trust God with that. But God has been patient and God continues to help us learn to trust more and more of our lives to him. So what does that mean for us now in the 21st century in Corvallis, Oregon at Northwest Hills? I think, really, we're a lot like Abram. There are times when we find it really easy to trust God, where we say, you know, God wants to bless me to be a blessing to people. I'm on board with that. Let's go. And if you feel like you're doing that in your life, more power to you. Keep it up. Tell the story, too, so you can encourage others. But then there are all these other places in our lives where I don't know that it's ever even occurred to us that God might have an invitation where we can act differently than everybody else. We, I call it like it's our blind spots, these things we never even consider. And the blind spots happen because of our culture, the way our parents brought us up, what we've learned at church, the way we've learned to read scripture even. We just have these blind spots. Abram had blind spots. For him, it was... You know, it was famines and pharaohs and fertility, right? Like that was his, his blind spots. For us, it's a little bit less um, alliterative. They don't all start with the same letter. I could probably make it work, but I'm not going to. I think for us, there's a lot of ways that we deal with our money. We have some blind spots there. I think there's some ways we deal with our relationships, both in our families, with our neighbors, um, friends, and at work. I think we just have blind spots in those areas. So I want to share some stories of things that I've noticed uh, or people that I've seen, oh, they actually did extend some trust to God here, and look what happened. Um, and not as a way to say, like, you have to do this, but just to open you up, like, there's, there's more than maybe, there are more options available than what you might have considered. Life can, does not have to look for you the way it has always looked. 
there are different things that God might want to do. So in the, the money area, uh, I, was, I just spent two weeks in Portland with about 30 college students, and we're doing a project we call it Summit, where we learn about the lordship of Jesus through loving the poor, through living simply, and living in community. And it was a total blast. We're, we're like working and serving at places like the Portland Rescue Mission during the day, in the evening, studying scripture. We studied the Sermon on the Mount. And there was a, there's a passage in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, don't store up treasures in heaven. Nope, he doesn't say that. He says, don't store up treasures on earth. I made the same mistake last service. Man. Don't store up treasures on earth where moth and rust and destroy and thieves come and steal, but store up treasures in heaven. And so we're, that's making us think about our money differently. And then like two nights later, we do an exercise about how to make a budget and how will we let Jesus be Lord of our money. And so what we did was we gave each student like, you are, you are like an engineer making $100,000 a year and you have a family of two. Make a budget for that family. And, you know, and other people were, had less money or more money. We gave one person like, you're an entrepreneur and you have a million dollars. What do you do with it? And so people would like put the money in and like, oh, here's how much my housing costs and here's my car costs and food and clothes and entertainment and, and giving and saving. And almost always people would end up with a big chunk of money left over because it was like more money than any of the college students ever imagined having. And they had this big chunk of money and almost invariably they just go, oh, I'll just throw it in savings. Just throw it in savings. Got this big chunk of money, just put it in savings. And as we looked at everybody's budgets, what they made, that became clear. And the guy who was leading it was like, did it ever occur to anyone, like with all this extra money you had, that, that God might want to do something with it? Why was your first thought, save it? It was like autopilot. You don't even have to think about it, save it. Now, I'm not saying saving is bad, but might there be a way that we could approach our finances with like, okay, God, is there actually something that you want to do with this money? Not, and, you know, you all are in a different place financially. I realize that, and I don't want to like say there's one way you have to do it, but I do think that as we approach our finances and our money, we can ask God at the front end, what do you want to do with this money? How would you have me and our family live? What kind of life are you calling us to with the means that you're giving us? And, I, you know, God, I know what, you know, I know what our society says to do about money. I know what the, you know, managing our finances, God's way workbook says. And I know what Dave Ramsey says. But is there something that you are inviting us into? And that was a really big deal for the students to just, oh, I haven't even, didn't even consider that. And a lot of them were continuing to wrestle with it throughout the rest of our summit project, which was good because they're beginning to ask the questions, which opens them up to more of what God might say. Uh, in the area of relationships, I think there are people that we just discount. We just say, there's no way God would ever want to do something in their life. They would never be open to the work of God in their lives. Now, I think God wants to surprise us with that. I just had an encounter with a family member recently where I was, you know, never really thought this person would be super interested in God or Jesus or anything. And they just like, oh, so I was reading the Bible and I came across this one weird passage. And I was kind of like, what? Like, you were reading the Bible? And I was a little bit unprepared for it, which is weird because I work in full-time ministry. So you'd think I'm like, I'd be on, but I just wasn't anticipating that. But it was this reminder, like, God's doing something in this person's life, and I have discounted them. 
I need to repent of that and continue to pray for this person and seek opportunities to like encourage them as they read scripture to begin to apply it and to ask good questions about it, right? They're just people that we've discounted that God might want to do something in and he wants to use us to do it. And maybe at work, have we considered that our work might be more than just this thing that we do that puts food on the table? I know some of you probably like really enjoy your work, which is great, but maybe God wants to do something in you and through you at your workplace. And I don't know what that is. I don't know what that looks like, but you could begin each day going like, hey God, like, how do you want to use me at my job? Is there someone you want me to influence? Is there someone you want me to show your love to? Is there a way that you would like to redirect what this, what this place of business actually even does that is more in line with your values and your kingdom? Uh, my wife, Andrea, tells a story of a guy she knows who I believe is a pastor, and he has this men's group that meets in the morning. And they would pray for each other each, each time they met. And what they would do is they would, they would pray to, like, send each other to work, like, to go as, like, missionaries or as, like, vessels of God's love into their workplaces. And the pastor's young son, who's probably, like, in kindergarten or first grade, noticed them doing that. And one morning he says, hey, dad, can you send me to school? And his dad's like, oh, oh, sure, why not, right? So he prays for his son and, you know, would he go and the power of the Spirit to be like an ambassador of the love of Jesus and would show God's love to the people that he's in school with. And a few weeks later, gets a call from the son's teacher. And the teacher's like, do you know what your son does in in our classroom? And he's like, oh, gosh, what? (laughs) And the teacher says, he finds the people in the class who no one else wants to hang out with, and he befriends them. And he helps our whole class. He, just, he leads our class, and he's so well-behaved, and he just is such a joy to have in this class. So I don't know what you're teaching him, but it's great. And this six-year-old kid is learning things that most of us never even think about. Like, oh, I, wherever I go, God can use me. In places that most people never think, oh, God might have something for me here. If there's any, you know, high school seniors here going off to college, most of you are going to go into the dorms and not really know what you're about, not really know what you're going to do. You could pray, God, send me into my new college as a vessel of your love so I can love the people around me, right? Like, that's just something you do. I did not think that as a freshman, and therefore I spent most of my freshman year afraid in my room with my door closed, And then I went into full-time college ministry. So there's hope for you if that's what you do. Those are just a couple of examples. Just some ways to think like there are these places that we maybe have never considered that we could trust God with. And if you're wondering maybe what some of those places might be, if those things that I mentioned didn't really help, um, maybe tomorrow... Go through your day, and then at the end of it, think back of your day and think about all the decisions that you made. And ask yourself, why did I make them? Why did I decide to do what I did? Was it because I was acting in faith, trusting like, that God was working and I was going to go with what he wanted to do? Or was I just going on autopilot, not even really thinking about it? And then once you do that, pick one of those places that you went on autopilot, just one because you get totally overwhelmed with this. Just pick one and say, okay, God, what would it look like for me to trust this to you next time? Maybe tomorrow to trust this to you. 
And as you pray about that, I was like, whatever God says, trust him. Give it a shot. Go for it. And I hope that as, this, as you guys begin to do this individually, but also as a church, that you would begin to say, have similar experiences to what one of Abram's grandchildren had. This guy named Jacob, who we said was a deceiver. But he had one night had this crazy dream about God. And when he woke up, he looked around him, and he was kind of shaken by it, but he says, you know, surely God was in this place, and I knew it not. I had no idea that God could speak to me here. I had no idea that God could do something here. And I hope that all of you begin to have more and more of those kinds of experiences. Or maybe the testimony of this church from here on out would be, surely God was in my neighbor, and I had no idea. Surely God was at work at my work, and I had no idea oh my gosh, God showed up at school and I had no idea he was already there. God is inviting us to entrust more and more of our lives to him. So let's take him up on it. Let's say yes, right? Because that's, that's the life that those of us who follow Jesus, that's what we signed up for. And you know, we said, Jesus, like, take my life. It's not mine. You lead it now. Where you lead, I will follow even though I don't know where it goes, I don't know what's going to come, I'm going to trust you. We, we decided that when we decided to follow Jesus. And if you didn't know that, surprise, that's what you signed up for. But it's good, right? Because when God invited Abram to trust him, it wasn't just, trust me, just because. It was, trust me, I'm going to bless the heck out of you. And I'm going to use you to bless the entire world. Trusting God is like, that's the means that God uses to like, change our lives and to change the world around us. It's good for everyone when we all say yes to Jesus. So I'm going to invite Mark up um, to play a little background music, and I'm actually going to lead us in a, in a bit of a reflection. Now, I don't know how many of you guys do this thing, but I'm gonna, it's kind of going to be a little bit of a guided prayer time where there's going to be some music playing in the background, and I'm going to just throw out some ideas or some questions, and you're going to have some ch- a chance to interact with the Holy Spirit around them. And I think the Holy Spirit can speak in a lot of different ways, if, and I think he already, he's always trying to speak to us, and I just don't know that we know how to hear it. So we're going to make some space this morning to hear from the Holy Spirit. And as I throw out some questions or some su- suggestions, um, it's possible, like, a picture may appear in your mind or a word or the face of a person or a scripture verse. You know, pay attention to what those are. Maybe write them down on a little piece of paper. Um, and it's this way for us to just engage with God and hear from him. Because I don't want to just give you a blueprint. So here's how you trust more and more of your life to God. Do this, do this, do this, do this. I actually want us to learn how to hear from Jesus ourselves and to respond to him and to respond to him as a church. So one of the questions I'm going to ask is, is there a word or or an invitation for this church. And if you feel like God speaks something powerful to you about this church, then you should tell Josh. Tell one of the elders. Like, let's help that happen. Let's make this a little more of an organic church experience. So, um, so Mark, whenever you're ready, you can come on up. I think I hear him back there. Yes. Okay. Great. So... Um, why don't we just close our eyes, sit in a comfortable position, one that is, you know, comfortable but doesn't make you fall asleep, and uh, we will we'll pray.
The Holy Spirit, we know that you are in our midst. You never leave us, uh, but we are just not aware of you all the time. So would you help us become more aware of your presence? Would you make yourself known to us in a new way this morning? God, we, we just confess to you that there are places where we don't even realize we can trust you. But we know that you stick with us and you are committed to us and you want to help us grow so that you can bless us and bless the world through us. So I ask, Holy Spirit, would you bring to mind any places in our life that it has never occurred to us to trust you? Some new place. And it's hard for us to even think about that because we weren't even aware of it. But would you bring it up now in a word or in a picture image maybe and if we can't think of those God would you bring to mind places where you have been extending an invitation to us and we have said no and also God I just pray that if you have an invitation for this church for Northwest Hills as a whole would you speak it to some people some new adventure, some new risk, new way this church has never considered trusting. And whatever it is that you, that you feel like God is speaking to you about, um, just maybe sit like with your hands open like you're holding it. And I want you to picture yourself in front of Jesus. I want you to imagine yourself saying, okay, Jesus, like, I trust you with this. I'm going to hand it over to you. And as you do that, pay attention. Are there any emotions that come up in you? Is it fear? Is it hesitation? Is it mistrust? Or maybe, maybe as you do that, you get excited. You feel your heart rate pick up a little like, oh, this is fun. I, I feel excited about doing this. Some joy. As you hand the things over to Jesus and even hand those emotions over to Jesus, Jesus wants to give you something in return for that, in, in, in place of that. Maybe if you're feeling afraid, he wants to give you love. Maybe if you're feeling ashamed or guilty, he wants to give to you a new amount of grace. Maybe if you're feeling hopeless, he wants to give you hope. Holy Spirit, as you bring those things up, as you do this in us, we pray you'd help us act in faith from what you're speaking to us now. And I pray for people who are feeling discouraged, like I, they can't even participate in this because it feels too weird. Uh, I pray that you would just remind them that we are all in a process. We're all learning and growing together and that you're not done with them and that you do want to speak to them. And as a, a final thing, um, I want to just take 15, 20 seconds and silently pray for the person next to you that they would have the courage to act on what God is bringing up in them right now. Because we're all in this together. We don't do this on our own. We do it as a church.
And the very final thing is take just a few seconds and pray that this church will respond to what God wants to do with the church as a whole. We're going to enter in a time of worship. And uh, there's communion stuff on the side. Mark will lead us a little bit into that. But as you take communion later, like this is a place where you can extend trust to God. You say, God, I trust in your blood and your broken body for the forgiveness of sins, for the new covenant, for the, the new way that we relate to God. And you can trust in the power of his resurrection to bring new life into your life and into your world. let's, as a church body, learn to trust more and more of our lives to God together. Amen.